So this is John 1, verses 6 through 8, and then verses 19 through 28. So we'll kind of skip there for a bit. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah or Elijah nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The word of the Lord. Amen. If you ever sit down during Advent to read the Gospels, or at least the, the portion of the Gospels that's dealing with the, the earliest stages of Jesus' life, you'll find that, that every one of these authors approaches it a little bit differently. Everybody comes at it from different angles and perspectives. Matthew is thorough. He wants you to know the details that maybe everybody else wouldn't tell you, right? Like the scandal and the controversy behind his birth, right? He wants you to see that there's a bit of conflict that Joseph feels internally when he finds out that his betrothed is now pregnant and he knows it's not his child. Matthew wants you to know it. He wants you to, to know the mystery of these, these magi who come from afar that nobody else might mention. Mark, on the other hand, is, is a portrait of brevity. The first thing you, you see in Mark is is John the Baptist immediately. It's the words of John the Baptist. In the first chapter alone, you're already in the ministry of Jesus as a man in his 30s, right? Mark is getting to the point. Luke might be the most thorough of all, especially as regards the earliest days of Jesus' life. He wants you to know all about the nativity, right? He wants you to know the specifics, the historical, geographical details. He wants you to know who was emperor. He wants you to know who was governor. He wants you to know it was in Bethlehem. He wants you to understand about the shepherds and the angels, everything. He wants you to see all of these details. Then there's John. John opens his gospel in the most epic fashion imaginable. 
He doesn't just take you to the beginning of Jesus' life. He takes you to the beginning, right? Like everything, Genesis, creation. He wants you at Genesis 1. He wants you to see this word of God that he's telling you about there in the beginning, speaking creation into being. That's what he wants you to see. And when you see that, you think to yourself, well, if he's beginning this way, in this epic fashion, then you're expecting kind of a soaring account of the nativity of Jesus, if it's your first time reading it, right? It's going to be amazing. How's he going to tell about Jesus' birth? You're thinking like, epic baby Jesus, right? This is going to be fun. This is going to be good. And instead, what John gives us is like Whoville after the Grinch finishes on Christmas Eve, right? John has taken all of our presents and our ribbons and our wrappings our tringlers and our trappings, right? It's, it's ridiculous. John has taken everything that we are so nostalgic about, all of this nativity stuff that we love. He's taken all of it. He's taken the wonder of Mary as she finds out that she's with child, right? He's taken the, the mystery of the Magi. All of it is gone. The shepherds, the angels, the cute babies, non-existent. And instead... He replaces all that with John the baptizer or John the Baptist. This figure who honestly is a lot like that guy you've seen on a street corner wearing a sandwich board with repent scrawled across it sloppily. He's screaming into a megaphone. He's making everybody uncomfortable, right? That's who John wants you to see. And it's easy, I think, for us to kind of say, Advent, Christmas time, I think I'm just going to stick to Matthew and Luke. Makes more sense. I like the nativity. It feels warm and fuzzy. That's where I'm going to go. But you cannot so easily dismiss the way John approaches this. And you cannot dismiss John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist is a man who knows exactly who he is. And maybe more importantly, you see in the passage, he's a man who knows who he's not. He gets it. He understands. And that's not a thing I, that most of us, I think, can say with confidence. I think most of us <clears throat> struggle to, to figure out who exactly we are. And we struggle to figure out who exactly we are not. We spend a lot of our lives struggling with this, wrestling with this. As modern people, this is one of our greatest struggles, one of our greatest fears in life, right? Now, if you're John the Baptist, that is not really something he thinks of very often. Uh, I don't know if you've, you've ever read any of Viktor Frankl's work, uh, a book he wrote, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. He, he talks about the idea that the, the ancient is not afraid of meaninglessness or purposelessness in the way that we are, right? It's death that they wrestle with. Death for them is imminent. It's always hanging over their heads. They recognize how fragile human life is. They're aware of it. They know it could come at any time. And so that's the thing they're wrestling with. That's what they want to deal with. A modern person lives with the notion of like life expectancy. We expect to live a certain amount of time. That's how it's supposed to go in our minds. We're not afraid of death because we think we've got a pretty good amount of time on our hands. We are afraid of meaninglessness. We're afraid of purposelessness. Our greatest fear is that we will live this life expectancy and get to the end of it and have nothing to show for it, to feel like none of it mattered. There was nothing of real significance to it, right? 
And so we're always searching for it. We're trying to figure out purpose and meaning, trying to find significance, live a life that means something. John never searched in this same sort of way. It was just given to him. Like that's the first thing we hear about John in the Gospel of John. John the Baptist was a man sent from God. That's his identity. He's a sent one. And he embraces that idea, right? That he's not his own person. He doesn't belong to himself. He belongs to someone else. He's not an independent individual. He's not his own man. John knows that if you're sent, you have to embrace the will of the one who sent you. You're not autonomous. You don't make all your decisions for yourself. You don't decide what is best for yourself. You don't decide your own identity. Ultimately, your identity is bound to the identity of your sender. It's interesting. Like being sent is humbling because what matters about you is the message of the sender who sent you. John says, he came as a witness to the light, but he was not himself the light. If you want to understand John the Baptist, that's it. That is his whole identity. Witness. This is who he is. He bears witness to the light. That's where all of his purpose and meaning are tied up in this idea of bearing witness not to himself, not to his own character, but bearing witness to something outside of himself, bearing witness to, to Jesus. This is everything for him. This is his purpose, and it's been given to him by his sender. He finds that purpose, really, more than anything. He embraces that purpose. It all makes sense to him because he knows who he is not, though. And I, I don't know that that's necessarily the way we go about things. But John, he, he embraces it. He knows his limits. He knows his limitations. He knows that he's not the light. He cannot be. He can't fill that role. He understands what his role is. And we don't always feel that way. I love um, how Matthew Henry said it. He's a famous commentator, long dead, uh, but wrote on just about every, every book of the Bible. This is what Matthew Henry says. John the Baptist was a star, like that which guided the wise men to Christ. A morning star. But he was not the sun. Not the bridegroom, but a friend of the bridegroom. Not the prince, but his harbinger. John the Baptist knows what he's doing is important, right? John is a star. The crowds are coming to him, but John knows he is not the sun. Nothing orbits around him. That's Jesus. He gets it. He knows he's just a friend of the bridegroom. He is not the bridegroom. He gets it. He knows he may be the harbinger of some incredible kingdom that is coming, but he knows he will never sit on that throne, right? He gets it. He understands it. He may be a harbinger of the kingdom, but he's just been sent to proclaim that kingdom, not to proclaim it as his own. And I think that's a hard thing for us to swallow. When we're the sent ones, when we are the witnesses, 
in a culture of, of self-improvement and, and self-esteem, like we are taught to advocate for ourselves, to hype ourselves. I don't know if you've, you've tried to hire anybody, looked at somebody's resume recently. Like that's maybe the biggest struggle. How do you figure out what is just hype and what they're actually qualified to do. Because people tend to overhype their resumes. they got to advocate for themselves. they got to pump themselves up to look a certain way. And we assume that the path in our culture of self-improvement, the path to self-improvement, to growth, is self-confidence, right? The antidote to all of my insecurities, life would be easier if I just had more confidence, right? And so all these people are listening to some motivational speaker. Maybe their motivational speaker is a preacher. And... And they sit and they listen to how they can find more confidence. We're taught to think more of ourselves, right? You ought to. And that's true to an extent. Like we should all recognize that. We need confidence at some level. But what John reveals is kind of surprising, right? It's something unexpected. John finds confidence and we ultimately find confidence not by thinking more of myself, but by thinking rightly of myself. John doesn't find confidence by thinking more of himself. He doesn't hype himself up so that he's ready to do this thing he's been sent to do. John, instead of of thinking more of himself, thinks rightly of himself. John reveals there's this freedom in finding that you aren't that impressive. There's a freedom that's found in knowing you aren't that unique. You aren't that important. Your life will not be that significant. You're dust, right? There's a freedom for us in knowing you are not the light. You're just a witness to the light. Like all of my identity, all of my purpose, all of my meaning, everything of significance I will ever do, it is tied to this light that I bear witness to. All of my hope and all of my efforts, all of my accomplishments... It's all tied up in this light that I bear witness to, in this prince who will soon sit on a throne that I bear witness to, right? We've said for years at Mosaic, one of our our core values, witness is why the church exists. We exist corporately to bear witness to Jesus. We as individual parts of this corporate body exist to bear witness to who Jesus is. And John the Baptist is the prototype, the perfect picture of what it looks like. He's so helpful in the season of Advent and throughout the year as we wrestle with what it means to bear witness to Jesus. John is humble. And, I mean, culturally, we like humble people. Like, that's one of our highest values, I think, as Americans. We love humble people. We like humble athletes. Somebody that's really, really impressive and acts as if they don't know it, right? People aren't bothered by John's humility, though. That's not what gets John in trouble. What gets John in trouble is that John is so humble, and yet he speaks such a bold message to all of these people who are in power. He's so humble But normally what you can count on humble people to do is is be pretty quiet. Instead, as a humble person, he's making all of the religious authorities deeply uncomfortable. Why? Chiefly because he's baptizing people. There's a reason they bring that up. He's baptizing people. Now we go, well, I mean, John is a religious figure. Every pastor you've ever known has 
baptized people. It just seems normal. John is baptizing people. No, not normal. It's not a Christian concept, baptism. It comes from Jewish practice. John would have been used to it. Everybody would have been used to it. But the way it normally looked was baptism was the practice of someone converting from either being a Gentile, worshiping some other god, a pagan, and deciding now I want to convert to Judaism. I want to be a part of the people of God. I want to worship Yahweh. And what it means to do that is to pass through the waters in the same way that the people of God did as they left Egypt. In the same way that they did as they passed through the Jordan entering into the promised land. They would be baptized. They would be cleansed. It was important. But the problem is, John's not mostly baptizing Gentiles and pagans. He's mostly baptizing Jewish people. Not to say that never happened before. But what John is doing is not normative. The religious elite in his society, they got questions. They're bothered by this. Their question is, who is this guy? Who do you think you are? that we would need to convert to whatever it is you are teaching. Like we know we are God's people. We're sons of Abraham and you're telling us now by implication that we need to convert to whatever it is you're teaching. And so they send this little group uh, and this passage, there's this sort of impromptu interrogation. That's exactly what's happening. They don't say that. They come to them and it's a little bit more casual looking, but they're there. They've been sent as well. And they've got questions. And their question really is pretty simple. Who in the world are you? Who are you? Because you can't just be nobody and be stirring this kind of scandal, this kind of controversy. You don't get to be nobody and baptize, folks. So they, they kind of apparently start from the top. You don't see the question in the passage, but, but John answers the question, so we know they must have asked it. Are you Messiah? Let's just start from the top. Are you the Messiah? And this is a pivotal moment. I want you to consider the, the, the level of pressure that's on someone when that kind of question is asked. Because John has this opportunity to seize something for himself, to draw much larger crowds than the ones that have been coming. John has an opportunity here. And John knows he's not the only person who's ever been asked this question. And there would be people after John and after Jesus who would be asked this question, are you Messiah? And lots of them saw this opportunity and they seized it. They falsely said, yes, I am Messiah. I am the anointed one that is to come. I am the son of David. They were willing to say those sorts of things. Imagine how much personal gain is tied up in that claim. It's a great opportunity, and the people will believe it, and the crowds will just get bigger and bigger, and John says, no. The Gospel of John says that he freely confesses he is not the Messiah. He wants to make that very clear, and so then they, they move down the line. Okay, then, are you Elijah? And maybe you, you've heard that before and been confused. Um, it's a, an Old Testament reference, not just to the prophet Elijah, but to something Malachi says. If you read our Old Testament, the way we arrange it is a little bit different than the way uh, Jewish people would, would read their Bible. The Hebrew Bible is, is set up a little bit differently than the way we do it. But we end our Old Testament with Malachi. And the last verses of Malachi not only acknowledge that a Messiah is to come, but acknowledge that the Elijah who is to come will soon be there. So somewhere in the neighborhood of like, you know, 400 years before Jesus is ever born, they're hearing 
that an Elijah is coming. They expected that before the Messiah, there would be one who would announce Messiah, and that would be some figure like Elijah, maybe literally Elijah, come back. That was the way they saw it. And so their question to John is like, is that you? Are you the Elijah? Right? And here's the thing, if you've read the other Gospels, you know, even Jesus says John is Elijah. He is the Elijah to come. You're curious about him. That's exactly who he is. So why is John saying in this moment, no, I'm not Elijah? Because John is comfortable with Jesus giving him that title. John's comfortable if Jesus wants to identify him that way. John is not comfortable identifying himself in that way, and he's not comfortable with the religious authorities identifying him in that way. John knows who he's not, and he's really cautious. So he says, no. Well, if you're not Elijah, then, then are you the prophet? Here's an even more obscure Old Testament reference. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses is preaching to the people before they enter into the promised land. And he says to them, another one like me is coming. Moses is coming, very much like me, one who will proclaim to you the word of God, and you have to listen to him. So they awaited this prophet, just like they were waiting on Elijah and Messiah, they were waiting on the prophet who would come. They didn't know exactly what it would look like, but there was all this expectation tied to this figure. And you got to think, like for John, this is kind of the easiest one. It's kind of hard to verify he's not the prophet in the same way. It's a much more arbitrary sort of distinction, the prophet. He fits the description pretty well, just like he fits the description of Elijah. And still, he says, no, I'm not. Think about that. That has to, at some point, that, that, that's going to cost John the Baptist. Like, nobody wants to keep coming to you if you're a nobody. If you're not important, if there's no need to come and listen to what you have to say, then why do I keep coming back? I don't understand what you want from me. We were assuming you were somebody. And that's exactly what happens. If you read a few verses beyond, I guess it's verse 35 that begins that little pericope. Jesus is standing there with some of his, excuse me, John is standing there with some of his disciples. He has his own disciples. And he sees Jesus for the first time in the Gospel of John. And he looks at his own disciples and he says to them, Behold the Lamb of God. John knows who he's not and he knows who Jesus is. Behold the Lamb of God. In essence, he's saying, Stop looking at me. Stop paying attention to me and start paying attention to him. Right? And that's exactly what Andrew does. Andrew leaves John, who he's been following. He goes and he finds his brother Peter. And the next time we see Andrew and Peter in the other Gospels, Jesus says, come and follow me. And they do exactly that. John is losing his own disciples. It's just shrinking smaller and smaller. All of the things we know about the disciples going to Jesus. We always go, oh yeah, Jesus said, come and follow me. Yeah, that's part of the story. But the other part of the story you don't see is what John does. John not needing to be in the limelight. John not needing them to stay with him. That is, that is humble. He willingly, joyfully says, stop looking at me. Behold the Lamb of God. And it's going to happen again in chapter 3. There's this other moment. Some of John's disciples come to Jesus, uh, come to Jesus, excuse me, some of John's disciples come to John and they say, John, do you realize what is happening? 
They're now leaving you and they're going to Jesus. And he's baptizing them. That's been our thing, right? We've been doing the baptizing. He's stolen our whole thing. Didn't we copyright that? Like, wasn't that ours? They're uncomfortable. They're offended. And, and John is overjoyed. It's this strange moment. It's, right, it's where that song we sang this morning came from. He says to them, the bride, right? Remember in the Old Testament, the bride is the people of God. The bride belongs to the bridegroom, to God. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. This is my joy. My joy is complete, he says. He must become greater, and I must become less. John knows he's going to lose some disciples along the way. John is a witness to the Lamb of God. He's a witness to the bridegroom. He's a witness to a light that is so overpowering, he knows in light of who Jesus is, he will inevitably fade into obscurity. And he's perfectly happy with that. And I think the question John forces me to confront, forces us as witnesses to confront, is like, are you okay with that? John is okay with that, that's fine, but are you okay with that? That the thing that you've been invited to bear witness to is so good that inevitably, in light of its goodness, you will pale in comparison and you will ultimately be forgotten. It will endure long after you. Are you okay with fading into obscurity as John is? Are you all right with being forgotten or do you need to be remembered? Do you need to be celebrated? Do you need a legacy? I think that's something we're fed very often. Are you okay with knowing that the message you've been sent with, this light that you are a witness to, are you okay with the fact that it's going to, to push you into the background? It's like John is saying, for all of the people who are chasing a legacy and trying to be remembered, he's saying, wouldn't you rather know the contentment and joy that is mine? My joy is complete, and you are chasing a joy that ultimately will, will fall short. You're chasing something, hoping that it will fulfill you, that ultimately won't, and you'll find much more joy in being forgotten. Are you okay with that? Knowing that you've been given something that is so much better than anything you could amass for yourself or offer to anyone else at the end of your life. Are you okay with that? Or do you need to feel like you've got to build it for yourself? I think it's, uh, it's really important when you're talking about this sort of thing, and especially as I, I don't want anything to be confused. When John says over and over again, I am not I am not Elijah, I'm not Messiah, I'm not the prophet, and I am not worthy to untie the sandals of the one who's coming, right? He just keeps saying this thing. Like when we hear that, I want you to understand, this is not self-deprecation from John. This is not self-loathing from John. This is not false modesty from John. These are all things we tend to mistake for humility. And John is, is not guilty of any of those things. Those things are often confused with humility. They have the appearance of humility and none of the substance of humility. I like the way um, Dale Bruner says it. He says it really well. He says, if the, the first peril of Christians is to think too much of themselves, the second is to think too little. 
If our first problem is that we, we think way too much of ourselves, the next problem we sometimes run into, our overreaction sometimes, is that we think too little. And you may think that you know, maybe we could derive that from what John is doing, but that's not what's happening. John's humility is not that he thinks too little of himself. Remember, it's that he thinks rightly of himself. John doesn't think little of himself. He knows his role and he knows it's beautiful. He thinks rightly of himself. The light that we bear witness to, it's not just a thing you hold in your hands. If you cling on to it tightly enough, if you do good enough, you'll hold on to this light and people will see it and that'll be great. No, the light that we bear witness to is a thing that radiates from the depth of our being by the power of the spirit Jesus has given us. That is no small thing. John gets it. He understands it. That's what's coming. That's what I'm to bear witness to. For us to bear witness to who Jesus is, it ultimately requires not just knowing who I'm not, but from that being able to derive exactly who I am. Knowing who I am and embracing that, regardless of how I feel about it sometimes, regardless of insecurity and failure and whatever, beginning to recognize that I am uniquely equipped to bear witness to this light. I'm uniquely equipped for this task that I've been sent with. And you see that, that deep confidence from John when they continue to press him. Then, what, then who are you? Like, you've you got to give us something. And he speaks the words of Isaiah. I am the voice of one calling out in the wilderness. John is a voice. A voice that will happily sing a song that is not his own. He doesn't need everybody to think it's his. He's perfectly happy to sing someone else's song. But that's not enough for them. They need more, right? If you're not Messiah, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, then why do you baptize? You realize that's problematic, right? And John says in this moment, I baptize you with water, right? You find that controversial, well, let me tell you what's even more controversial. It's the one who's coming after me. He will say, not just that he can baptize you with water, but that he can baptize you with the Holy Spirit. If you think what I'm saying is controversial, there's one who's coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop and untie. I baptize you with water because that's all I can baptize you with. But one is coming who can baptize you with the Spirit. And when John says, I am not worthy... Again, this is not about his self-worth as we define it. This is not about John thinking there's nothing good in him, nothing of value in him. It has less to do with a low opinion of himself and more to do with this deep awe he has of the Messiah he's proclaiming. It flows from something else. John has found such joy, such satisfaction in the Messiah that he knows he could walk from one end of the Roman Empire to the other. He could draw the greatest crowds. He could work lifetime after lifetime and never be able to offer them anything better than this light that he's been called to bear witness to. He knows it. There's nothing of any real worth he has to offer them but this and so he says, I am not worthy. It's different than what we might imagine. 
He knows it. I don't have anything that could compare to that, of any real worth or value compared to that. Only Jesus has something like that. He wants you to see that. John is a man who gets it. He's the voice of Advent, the, the prophet of Advent, sometimes we call him. He's the portrait of what we mean when we say witness is why the church exists. This is what we're to model, the life of John. As we proclaim the hope of Christ's coming, John gives us the best way of seeing it. But we live in a culture that, that rushes us past Advent and directly to Christmas. We live in a culture that is moving us always to, to family gatherings, to festivities, to parties, to the lights, to the fun, to the nostalgia. And Advent gets lost, right? Somewhere along the way, we lose sight of the one who was born in Bethlehem. How ironic is that? And we lose sight of the one who's coming again in New Jerusalem. How ironic is this? That this season, somehow, we've lost hold on its central hope. Our minds drift to all of the things that we've got left to do. We're always trying to finish something before we shut down for the holiday. There's always more work that we need to get done. And December is famously a month where you cannot, cannot be productive. You can't get everything done that you need to. And so we still try. Though we know it's true, you're just not going to get everything done that you need to. We still try. Like we're rushing, we're distracted. And even if we think of Advent, most of the time our thoughts turn inward. We're thinking about everything that's going on with us. Like when, when I hope for the coming of Jesus, generally it's about my own circumstance. I see all these things in the world going on around me that should turn me toward a hope for a coming kingdom but really, I'm just concerned with how those things affect me. I'm, I'm mostly concerned with, with my own circumstance when I think of the coming of Christ. Uh, David Bartlett puts it really well. He says, there's this thing that happens to us in Advent. Very often, we turn from our waiting for Christ. He puts the emphasis on Christ. We turn from our waiting for Christ, and we instead focus on our waiting for Christ. Somewhere along the way, the, the focus shifts. The emphasis shifts for us. There's this point where we're no longer waiting for Christ. It's all about our waiting. What we've been through. What we're struggling with. And we often aren't longing for Christ himself, right? We're more longing for the relief he can bring to my circumstance, to my pain, my struggle, my anxiety, my need. And John reminds me, Advent is about looking outside of myself for my hope. Advent is about letting myself be forgotten. Advent is about getting lost in the light that I bear witness to. Advent is about becoming less as he becomes greater, as he comes into focus. We fade into the background as Jesus comes to the fore and John says, this is my joy and it has been made complete. All of my joy is found in, in fading into the background of this much greater story God is weaving in history. I, I thought about, about Grant this week. We were in, uh, at Camp McDowell in, in early November doing our men's retreat. And there was this funny moment. So we decided together as a group 
This is a house that's built in the, the I guess, the mid-1800s. Very old cabin, and we're always there uh, for our men's retreat. And there are all these old pictures, all these like black and white sepia-toned pictures that hang on the walls there. And over the years, they've just kind of like become the aesthetic of the place. And we kind of wondered this year, if we left a picture, would it just kind of fade into the background? Like nobody would ever notice it. It would just stay there. It would become a part of the aesthetic of this ancient cabin, you know? And a few years ago, Grant took a picture of us in black and white, and we're all standing on the front steps of the cabin looking like, you know, it's an old photograph. No smiles. And so we take the photograph, and they put it in a frame. And when I come in for the men's retreat, there it sits on the mantle. And I'm like, imagine if next year we come back and it's still there, right? But the funny thing about the picture is the very person who orchestrated it all is Grant Francis. And if you look in the frame you can only see a part of Grant Francis. Everybody else is in full view. You can see everybody that was there that year, but Grant is obscured by the frame. I'm like, that's John. John is remembered, but he's, he's obscured by the light that he bears witness to. He's cut out of the frame, and, and John says, there is no greater joy. I have done my job well. Let me just fade into the background. And as the band comes and, and, and we move to the table, there's this cool opportunity for us to, to dig into this, what that means together. As individual people, as we come and we take of, of one cup, as, as we come and we take of, of one loaf, there's this opportunity for God to bind us together in this, not just as a bunch of individuals who bear witness to who Jesus is, but into a body that is together corporately bearing witness to who Jesus is, bearing witness to this light, letting ourselves kind of fade into obscurity, into the background as Jesus comes into focus, not just in this season, but in every season. There's a cool opportunity as, as we partake of this together, to be bound together in that, our call our sent mission to bear witness to Jesus. Yeah, let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for these people. I thank you for this moment, and I thank you for the testimony of your servant, John. I thank you that, that he teaches us something that is, yeah, it's hard for us to learn very often. But we pray, Lord, we would find the deepest and most abiding joy in knowing who we are not and finding who we are in this call to bear witness to who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as they play, feel free to come and uh, tear off a, a piece of bread.